Abrahamim, Father Mercies, we worship you, love you, and adore you. Father, I pray that as we open your word up tonight, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and lives as we move forward in this discussion on the interaction of your Kodesh, of your Holy Spirit in our lives, and the basis that we see for it in your scriptures. Father, I pray that you speak into our hearts and lives this evening, and that you reveal to us boldly uh, exactly what you have in store, exactly what you have to say. Uh, Father, speak tonight. Let it be your heart felt and your words known. B'shem In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Last week, we were talking about um, Moses and Joshua, and uh, as most are aware, um, Joshua became the second generation of leadership of the, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, as they uh, were preparing to go into the promised land. And we saw last week as we discussed about the portion of the mantle that was of the Ruach HaKodesh, or the Holy Spirit that was upon Moses, was placed upon Joshua, and Joshua led Israel in the same leadership, in the same direction as Moses in terms of the Spirit of God moving through him and speaking through him. We see great verses like uh, Joshua proclaiming, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there's this desire in Joshua's heart to pursue the things of the Lord no matter what. Well, this week we're going to look at a similar circumstances um, but from a little bit of a different perspective. Tonight we're going to look at Saul, uh, sorry, Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon. All right, and we're going to look at the way that we see the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, upon each of these individuals' lives. Uh, and there are countless more that we could discuss. We could have thrown Nathan in the discussion. We could have thrown David's sons messing things up for Solomon and David in the discussion. We could have thrown all sorts of things in here. But we only have a limited amount of time. We only have 10 weeks that we're covering this, this topic from Genesis through, uh, through the epistles of Revelation. So I just wanted to, to really hone in on some very specific instances in which we see the Ruach HaKodesh move. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up this evening to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you hit Matthew, you went too far. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see an all-too-familiar story in the scriptures, right? Uh, we see a narrative about a woman who is barren, who is unable to have children, who uh, is married to a husband and has a, I guess the Mormons would call a sister wife. Um, you know, the husband's got two wives, and one of the wives, as is the narrative that we read numerous times in the scriptures, one of the wives is blessed and has many children, and one of the wives uh, is barren, her womb is closed by the hand of God. Um, and she has no children, and the one with children is rubbing it in the one without children's face, and so on and so forth. And so every year, um, uh, the husband, um, Elkanah, every single year goes to the tabernacle in Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh is up in the north. Uh, you can actually go today. If, if we plan a tour for the synagogue to Israel, this is one of the sites in Israel that I want our people to go and experience. It was my favorite place in all of Israel. Uh, it's called Tel Shiloh today, Shiloh the Shiloh, 
where the tabernacle itself stood for 370 some odd years in the north of Israel. You can stand in the very same place that the tabernacle stood for 370 years. You can stand in the very same location that the, the Holy of Holies stood for 370 years in Israel. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's, when you talk about standing on holy ground, you can, you can sense it there. Um, I mean, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable when you're there. And so here, uh, Elkanah, the husband, is every year he goes to the tabernacle in, in Shiloh and he brings his offerings and he makes offering and shares the offering with his family and worships the Lord and, and he's this devout follower of Adonai. And so every single year he makes this journey. Um, and he brings his wife, he brings his children, um, but along the way he always ends up with uh, uh, the, the wife uh, who has children whose name is Peninnah. Uh, it, it always gets kind of more por- of a portion of the offerings than Hannah. Uh, he loves Hannah very much, and, and it alludes kind of to the story of, uh, of uh, Jacob and loving one more than the other, and da-da-da. And so he loves Hannah, but Hannah doesn't have any children for him, and Peninnah does, and so he kind of gives extra to her and what have you. Well, here in 1 Samuel 1, we see the heart of Hannah as Hannah is at the tabernacle, and she is praying, and, and she's pouring out her heart to the Lord, and she tells the Lord in verse, um, verse 10, it says, while her soul was bitter, she prayed to Adonai and wept. So she made a vow and said, Adonai Zavot, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your handmaid, uh, remember me and not forget your handmaid, but grant your handmaid a son, then I will give him to Adonai all the days of his life, and no razor will ever touch his head." Uh, anybody recognize what that sounds like? No razor will ever touch his head. It's the Nazarite vow, right? Now there's more to it. He also will not be able to drink, uh, drink or eat anything of the vine and so on and so forth. But she's saying, if you give me a child, this child will be specially dedicated to you for his entire life. Um, and so she prays and she prays and she's sitting in the tabernacle and she's pouring her heart out before the Lord and her mouth's moving, but nothing's coming out because it's just her and the Lord, right? And here comes the high priest, Eli, and the high priest goes, hey, why are you drunk already? This is ridiculous. You've got to stop drinking. You need to get off of that wagon. You need to get your life together. And she goes, oh, I'm not drunk. I'm praying to the Lord. And so uh, Eli, the high priest, says, okay, well, whatever it is you're praying, may the Lord bless you and give you your wish because he can see the burden on her heart and the, de- the desire that she has for what it is she's asking. And so she goes home. Lo and behold, she gets pregnant. Um, and uh, the next time around that her husband goes to uh, back to Shiloh to make his offerings as he does every year. She tells him, look, I'm going to stay behind. I told the Lord that as soon as this kid was weaned, I would be dedicating him to the Lord and he would stay at the tabernacle. So I'm going to stay here and me and the son are going to stay here. And she names him uh, in Hebrew Shmuel, uh, Samuel in English. Shmuel is his name in Hebrew and it's, it's God hears. All right, Shmuel for the root there is Shema, the same root as Shema. We say the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 4, Shema Israel, Adonai Elheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Shema. And so the, the word Shmuel means the Lord heard. I cried out to the Lord and he heard my cry. Uh, he heeded to my cry. He did something in his hearing to my cry. And so she names him Shmuel and then dedicates him to the Lord. And she tells uh, Elkanah, look, I'll go with you next time. By the next year around, he'll be weaned. I'll bring him 
and we'll hand him over to the priest and he will live out his life in service at the tabernacle. And from that moment forward, once she hands him over, she never sees him again except on that once a year journey when they go back to the tabernacle and she'll bring him clothes and, 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 and what have you. Verse 30, 25 of chapter 1. After they slaughtered, she's now returned with Shmuel to the tabernacle. After they slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, the high priest. It's me, my Lord. She said, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by you here praying to Adonai for this boy I prayed, and Adonai has granted me my petition that I asked him. So I, in turn, dedicate him to Adonai as long as he lives, he is dedicated to Adonai. Then he bowed and worship there before Adonai. We skip forward, uh, we see Hannah's prayer, and we see the sons of Eli and the way that they're evil and treat people wrong, what have you, but chapter 3 is where we begin to see the call and the burden that's on Samuel, Shmuel. Shmuel becomes a prophet, right? The, the seer, as it's related in the, the narrative of Saul looking for his father's donkeys a chapter or two ahead. He becomes a prophet of the Lord. He becomes a judge of Israel in many regards um, and an overseer of the people of God. As a matter of fact, he is what we can consider the final judge before the kings of Israel begin their order. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now the boy Samuel was, to, was in the service of Adonai under Eli in those days, the word of Adonai was rare. In other words, in those days, people did not receive the word of Adonai to speak forth. They did not prophesy in the name of the Lord. In those days, the word of Adonai was rare. There were no visions breaking through. One day, Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyes had grown dim so that he could not see, and the lamp of God had not, gone out, had not yet gone out. Uh, in other words, this isn't the lamp in terms of, of the soul that's within him or the presence of the breath of God. It's literally speaking of the lamp of the tabernacle, right? Because it's not long after this that the Philistines that go to war against Israel and, and uh, Eli's two sons take the Ark of the Covenant out to battle thinking, well, God will fight victoriously for us. They were still outside of God's will, but they take the ark out to battle and the Philistines cart off the tabernacle or the ark from the tabernacle and all of this goes on and, and ultimately the, the tabernacle's purpose, because the ark isn't there anymore, the tabernacle's purpose to many regards is kind of null and void at this point uh, when this happens. Now they end up bringing it back because they couldn't deal with all the other mess that the Philistines had to deal with because the, tab the ark was there and they, they're like, here, you guys have it. We can't do this. We don't want it anymore. It's yours. Um, but he goes on to say, he goes on to say, one day Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyes had grown dim so that he could not see, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down at Adonai's temple where the ark of God was. Then Adonai called Samuel. So he answered, here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he replied, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. So he went back and laid down, and this happened two more times, that he hears uh, the, the Lord speak for Samuel, and he says, here am I, and he runs to Eli, to his master, the high priest, and Eli says, I didn't call you, go lay down and leave me alone. The third time, Eli starts to get the picture, and Eli says, hey, listen, this is the Lord speaking to you. This doesn't happen very often anymore. Don't miss out on this. The next time you hear the, the voice of the Lord speak, you simply say, and he goes to uh, to verse 9, he says, So Elise said to Samuel, Go back to sleep, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Adonai, for your servant is listening. All right? 
Very important. And we talked about this on Shabbat. Go back and listen to the podcast from this past Shabbat. If you haven't heard it yet, we talked about hearing the voice of the Lord and how important it is and what we as, as believers need to do to get our lives in line to where we can hear the voice of the Lord if we're not. Because odds are we are doing something that's, that's blocking His voice from entering into our hearts. But he says, speak, Adonai, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went back and laid down in his place. Then Adonai came and stood and called as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Then I said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone that hears it will tingle. And then he goes on to talk about getting rid of Eli. Uh, of Eli's household and, and holding to the promises he made to Eli's household. But at this point, we begin to see we begin to see the exact moment in which Samuel, Shmuel, begins to have this interaction with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit, and the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh that's upon him. And you may be going, well, what in that passage makes us think that there's any sort of an anointing of the Ruach upon Samuel as there was on, on Moses or on uh, Joshua or later on David and Solomon and so on? What makes us think that there's any sort of a mantle on Samuel in that same sense? And it's that he hears the Lord. He hears the voice of the Lord. But we also know that from Moses to the 70 elders, from Moses to Joshua, there was a transference of anointing. There was a transference of the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh, or the mantle of the Holy Spirit, that was made from one to another, right? And when we go forward to the story of Saul being anointed as king and David being anointed as king, it's the same thing. Samuel, Shmuel, is anointing him, lays hands on him, anoints him, and there is a transference of a portion of the mantle that he carries of the Ruach HaKodesh that is then placed upon Saul and then placed upon David as the leaders of the nation of Israel. And it can only work in that way. It can only work, especially pre the outpouring in which it's available for everyone, right? And the Tanakh, what we're seeing is that it is accessible for anyone that God chooses, Right? And in Acts 2, what we realize is the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, same story. It's accessible for anyone that God chooses. The difference is he's chosen everyone as he always had. Now we have an opportunity to choose too and to come into this covenant relationship with him. Uh, and now the Ruach is available for all. So here we see throughout the Tanakh that there's instances, there are situations in which he raises up specific individuals for the sake of placing the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh on them for his purposes, for his purposes. And it is their job to do just as, as Shmuel does here and says, here I am, Adonai, I am listening. Your servant is listening. And from this moment forward, he becomes the prophet of Israel. He becomes, in essence, the judge of Israel. He becomes the one to whom Israel looks to for guidance, for leadership, and so on. Um, <clears throat> then we go forward to, uh, uh, hang on a second, let me look through my notes real quick. I got ahead of myself for a split second. Jumping back to verse 19, uh, the end of the chapter where we see Shmuel, Samuel hearing the voice of the Lord. Uh, chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19 says, So Samuel grew up, and Adonai was with him, and, let no, and yet let none of his words fall to the ground. In other words, anything the Lord said to him, he spoke forth because he realized these words were for Israel. They were for individuals within Israel. He never let his word come back void. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba uh, knew that Samuel was entrusted as a prophet of Adonai, Adonai started to appear once more in Shiloh, for Adonai revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of Adonai. Now, early on in chapter 3, we read that 
There's no appearance of the Lord anymore. At least it's rare. It's few and far between. The voice of the Lord is not heard anymore. There are not visions and and dreams that are given from the Lord at this point in time because Israel has already started to segment themselves from the Lord. They already started to dichotomize themselves from faithfulness to the Lord. And so Samuel is one of the first ones in which we see this continuum of the presence of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord coming forth and the pouring, the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh on an individual. And he says, and, and from here he goes, and all of uh, verse 21, all of a sudden, Adonai started to appear once more in Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle stood. It's where the, the uh, glory of the Lord rested upon the Ark of the Covenant. And it says that all of a sudden now, because Samuel's faithfulness and his willingness to serve the Lord and the anointing that's upon him, the Lord began to show his glory to Israel again, right? Samuel begins, and, and what we say previous, a prophet's job biblically is what? To speak the word of the Lord... And the word of the Lord is always what? Return to me, right? And so Samuel's job as the prophet of Adonai, as is the case with Elijah and Elisha, as is the case with uh, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on and so forth, their job is to speak forth the word of the Lord to usher us back. Their job is not to speak forth future visions and fortune telling, although telling the future can be a part of prophecy, The point to prophecy is always to speak the word of the Lord and call people to return. If we look at Isaiah and Jeremiah's examples, that's exactly what we see over and over again. Here's what God says is going to happen. In the future, there's going to be destruction, but God just wants you to come back. And if you simply come back, all of that will be stayed. All of that will be pushed off. Uh, There will be a stay of execution. So all of a sudden, as Samuel is walking in the anointing, the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh, the anointing of the, the Holy Spirit as prophet and judge over Israel, we begin to see something that God had foretold would occur. Let's go back to Deuteronomy real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you had Genesis, you went too far. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning with verse 14, says, When you come to the land that Adonai your God is giving you, possess it and dwell in it, and you say, in other words, once the Lord has done everything that he said he's going to do, to do for you, you're going to become arrogant, you're going to become uh, conceited, you're going to become uh, uh, comfortable in the land that you're in and, and where you're at. And he says, uh, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You will indeed set over yourselves a king when whom Adonai your God chooses. In other words, they say the exact thing God said not to do. God said be different from everyone around you, right? Do not be like the nations. I've called you out to be set apart, to be righteous and holy, to be different from the nations. And he says, but there will come a day when you're going to cry out to the Lord, I'm going to give myself a king so that I can be like all the nations around me. And so the Lord says, you will indeed set over yourselves a king whom Adonai your God chooses. In other words, as we read in other places, God puts people in powers of authority for his purposes, right? We may not always understand it and we may not always like it. Look, Hitler was a really bad dude, did a lot of really bad things. But the Lord used what Hitler did and the destruction that he caused to bring about the, the revelation or the, the reality of the prophecy, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, ultimately beginning what is the opening up of the end time, the, uh, the realization of the end time prophecies. Um, and so as we see this, we see that Hitler was outside of God's will, but God used the authority that he gave him 
to bring about his purposes. We don't have to understand it when it's happening. We just have to trust that God is in control. And he says, so you will set over yourselves a king whom Adonai your God chooses. One from among your brothers will be anointed or appointed as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only you should not multiply horses for himself or he should not multiply horses himself. Make the people return to Egypt to multiply horses because Adonai has said to you, you must never go back that way again, nor should he multiply wives for himself so that his heart does not turn aside, nor multiply much silver and gold for himself. Now, if you look at Solomon, Solomon is considered the wisest person that ever lived, right? And we'll talk about this more later, but the one thing he asked the guy was, give me wisdom to lead your people, right? Solomon was considered one of the most righteous, one of the most uh, wise men that ever lived, and do you realize that in the first few years of his kingship, he broke every single one of those commands for the king? Right? The wisest king that ever lived broke every single one of those right out the gate. <clears throat> so the Lord says, there will come a day in which you are going to desire to be like the nations around you. And when that time comes, you will ask for a king. You will ask to have a king like all the nations around you. And the reality is, is that Israel wasn't supposed to do this because who's supposed to be our king? Adonai, the Lord, right? The Lord is our king. We should not have a king here on earth because the Lord is our king. He's the king over heaven and earth, and we are to submit to his will, to his authority. But alas, Samuel is approached with uh, the, the evil inclination of Israel to bring about these exact words that we read about in Deuteronomy 17. And so in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, we read verse 1. Now when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. He, uh, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice, by the way. Almost an exact mirror of what Samuel's sons did and what Eli's sons did. The high priest of Israel uh, that Samuel served under, his sons did, and what uh, uh, Samuel's sons did, right? They're serving under righteous men and their hearts turn astray. Now, in this case, Samuel learned the lesson from Eli. Eli didn't do anything about it. He didn't try to, to, to um, punish his children or, or bring them back or anything or cast them out. Instead, he just let them wreak their havoc and uh, Samuel doesn't do so. So then verse uh, 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Right? Deuteronomy 17, the Lord says, There will come a day when you've come into the land and you've taken it and you have uh, settled in it that you will approach and say, We want to put a king over us like all the nations around us, and that day has now come. Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. But the matter was displeasing in Samuel's eyes when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to Adonai, and Samuel gets upset. I mean, he gets really, there's this righteous anger, this righteous zeal that rises up within him. Uh, because he recognizes Israel's king is Adonai, Israel's king is Hashem. They shouldn't have an earthly king. They should not have a man, a human, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem or wherever else acting as the king of Israel because the king of Israel sits in the heavens and he sits on the throne of God that is in the Holy of Holies 
of the tabernacle in heaven. We should not have an earthly king. And we are to operate, we are to walk, we are to live in his presence, but we cannot live in his presence if our, our allegiance is split between two, right? Uh, the Gospels tells us that a kingdom divided shall fall, right? And so we can't have an earthly king and a heavenly king and give our full allegiance to our heavenly king while also giving our full allegiance to our earthly king, especially when we're looking at Israel, which is a biblical reality, something that God had ordained for his purposes. How can we walk in his purposes if we are also submitting our lives to a man's purposes as well? So Samuel gets upset, and in this righteous anger, um, he does a really wise thing. He consults the Lord, right? As opposed to just wreaking out in wrath and, and, and anger and, and spewing vile at Israel for what they're saying, he seeks the word of the Lord. He seeks the voice of the Lord. He seeks the heart of the Lord, and he goes to him in prayer. Um, but as this righteous anger begins to rage in him, uh, as Israel asks for this king fulfilling Deuteronomy 17, uh, what we end up seeing is not only does Israel get a king, they get the exact king they're looking for because they get what they want to be like all the nations around us, right? And we don't pick a wimpy little dude to be our king. We pick a guy that's going to lead us in a battle on a stallion horse, right? We pick this guy that's not afraid of anything, that's bigger than everyone, the, the, this monster-looking character that's going to make us proud, right? But God doesn't always pick that guy. But in this case, God gives them exactly what they were looking for because he knew that they needed it in order to understand how wrong they were for asking for this king. So here we move forward to um, chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. In chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, Samuel meets with Saul for the first time, and it's this really weird circumstance, right? Um, it's almost this... Uh, Acts vision with Peter and Cornelius' household and the sheet coming down, and there's really weird circumstance of things going around, right? I mean, it's just out of the blue, Saul's out taking care of his dad's donkey, or his dad's donkey's run out, and he sends Saul out to go find them, and he goes out, and he can't find them anywhere, and, and, and for whatever reason, he goes to, to hunt down the seer, the prophet Samuel, and he goes to Samuel. Well, on his way to Samuel, the Lord knew Samuel wasn't ready for this, so he goes and he talks to Samuel and says, hey, about this time tomorrow, this young kid's going to come up to you, and by the way, he's the king of Israel, he's the one I've chosen for that purpose. And the scriptures tells us that he stood uh, head and shoulders above everyone else. He was this big monstrosity of a dude. He was bulky. He was strong. He was valiant. He was brave. Um, he was everything that we as humans would look for in a leader, everything that we as humans would look for in a king. And so the Lord tells Samuel that this guy Saul is to be the king and so on and so forth. And so in chapter 10, of 1 Samuel, we read, Then Samuel took the vial of oil and poured it on his head. Then he kissed him and said, He uh, has uh, Adonai not anointed you ruler over his inheritance. When you leave me today, you will find two men near the tomb of Rachel and the territory of Benjamin and Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. Behold, your father has dropped a matter about the donkeys and is worried about you saying, what should I do about my son? And he goes on to talk about how he was to come back to him at a specific time and everything was going to work out and whatever. Um, but as all of this is going on, we see that now Solomon, uh, sorry, Saul has been anointed as king over Israel. He has been made the king of Israel. Uh, and, and as all of this begins to happen, Israel gets exactly what they're looking for. But Samuel's heart is broken for Adonai. Verse 11, we, or chapter 11, we see Saul's first battle and victory. And then in chapter 12 is when we see Samuel begin to pour his heart out and rebuke Israel. And this is where that righteous 
anger, that righteous zeal that is built up within him, and I believe empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, begins to speak forth in this situation. And verse 1 says, Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all you said to me, and set a king over you. Now here is the king who will go before you, while I am old and gray. Also here are my sons with you. I have gone before you from my youth to this day. Here I am, witness against me before Adonai uh, and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded and whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to look the other way? I will restore it to you. Then uh, they replied, you haven't defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from anyone's hand. Then he said to them, Adonai is then a witness against you and his anointed is a witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is a witness, they replied. Then Samuel said to the people, it is Adonai who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now stand still so that I may plead with you before Adonai concerning all the righteous acts of Adonai, which he did for you and for your fathers. And then he goes on to declare what they are. Then Adonai sent Jerubbabel, uh, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered, this is verse 11, and delivered you from the hand of your enemies and every side, on every side so that you might live securely. But when you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, marching against you, you said to me, Not, uh, no, but get, a king must reign over us, even though Adonai, your God, is your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen. And whom you have asked for. And behold, Adonai has set him as a king over you. If you fear Adonai and worship him and listen to his voice and do not rebel against the command of Adonai, then both you as well as the king who reigns over you will be following Adonai your God. But if you do not listen to the voice of Adonai and rebel against the command of Adonai, then the hand of Adonai will be against you and against your fathers. Now stand by and see the great thing that Adonai will do before you. He goes on to show the, uh, a sign and wonder, a miracle for Israel to believe in uh, as all of this is going on. But what we see is that in this righteous anger, this righteous zeal of Samuel, which by the way, Saul never lives by, right? Never lives by. But this righteous zeal, this righteous anger of Samuel begins to come forth and he begins to, uh, to, to let Israel know exactly where they messed up at. And he begins to speak forth the word of the Lord. As a matter of fact, most of what he says in the latter half of that chapter is an exact replica of what we read about in the Torah, right? If you and your children just honor God's word, obey his commands, and keep to his ordinances, everything will go well for you, you will live long and prosper, uh, and so on and so forth. You will have the land that God has given you, and everything will go well. You won't have diseases, the plagues of Israel will not see, uh, uh, besiege you, and so on and so forth. And it's all repeated again here, and it's repeated over and over again in numerous other places. But what we see is that this prophet of the Lord, who is empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, begins to speak forth the word. Now, what I want to look at real quick is Saul. Because we've seen Samuel, we've seen the way that Samuel interacts with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit. We've seen the way he begins to prophesy and speak forth. But now the Ruach, at least in these next couple of individuals we're going to speak, at, uh, speak about, now the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is upon a different type of individual. Now he's, we're not looking at him upon a prophet. We're not looking at him upon a prophet like Moses or like Joshua or like Aaron. We're not looking at him on a prophet like Samuel. But now we're going to be looking at him on a king, on the earthly king of Israel. We're going to be looking at the Ruach HaKodesh upon this type of, excuse me, type of leadership. Verse 9 of chapter 10. So you're going back a little bit. Verse 9 of chapter 10. Then it happened as Saul turned his back to leave Samuel that God transformed his heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they arrived there, 
At the hill, behold, a band of prophets did meet him, and suddenly the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, overtook him, and subsequently he prophesied among them. All right, first off, he leaves Samuel, and the first thing that happens is God transforms his heart, right? Almost sounds like salvation, right? God transforms our heart when we become Savior. At least we should allow him to. Sometimes we get in the way of that process, but we should allow him to transform our hearts so we can walk in his ways. So here he transforms Saul's heart. And then the next thing we see is that he is then empowered with the Ruach. It says that the Ruach of God overtook him, right? The Ruach didn't just sit on his shoulder over here whispering in his ear to do this or to do that, right? The Ruach didn't just kind of come into his life and leave him. The Ruach overtook him. The Spirit of God overtook him, and he began to prophesy. Uh, it says, uh, a band of prophets didn't meet him, and suddenly the Ruach of God overtook him, and subsequently he prophesied among them. So when all who knew him formerly saw him prophesying with the prophets, they said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Someone there asked, who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So immediately upon him receiving, just a few verses before this, he receives the anointing of Samuel as king, right? Samuel pours it all over his head, lays his hands on him, and anoints him with smicha, with a laying on of hands as the king of Israel. And then he says, now look, you've got to go through all these different things before you're actually standing before Israel as their king. But, but God's going to bring it all to pass. This is God's uh, doing. You were God's anointed. And notice the way that works. You were God's anointed. That doesn't mean you're always going to do right, but you are the one whom, who God has chosen. Moses was God's anointed, and he messed up left and right. Joshua was God's anointed, and he messed up, right? He's told not to make a treaty with anybody, and instead of seeking the face of the Lord, somebody comes to him and looks like they've come a long way, and he's like, yeah, sure, here, have a treaty. It's all good, right? We mess up. Even as the anointed of the Lord, we are going to mess up. That's just how it is. But the difference is that Saul doesn't ever actually come back around. Why? Why do we not see Saul turn back around? It's because Saul is who the people thought they needed as a king. But when we get to David, David is a man after God's own heart. David is a foreshadowing of Mashiach. He's a foreshadowing of Yeshua. And so what we see with Saul is Saul isn't a man after God's own heart. Saul is exactly what Israel, Israel's getting exactly what they want. They wanted this big, muscular, beefy-looking dude that could lead them into battle and that they would be proud to follow behind. And they got exactly that. Scripture says he stood shoulder, uh, head and shoulder above everyone else. He was taller than everybody. He's bigger than everybody. They got exactly what they wanted. Samuel says, here, God is giving you the king that you want. But notice in, in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord says, I'm going to give you the king I choose. Right? Right? So he has chosen. He's anointed Saul. He hasn't chosen Saul for his purposes to the degree of what he does with David, but he has chosen him for his purposes to the degree of it's a wake-up call for Israel. If you want to be like the nations around you, this is what you get. You get a train wreck because all the nations around you are a train wreck and all of their leaders are train wrecks, but this isn't what I have for you. And so the, the Ruach HaKodesh is upon uh, Saul, and I think a lot of times we lose focus on that. We lose focus on the reality that even though Saul was clearly over and over again outside of the will of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, was upon him, right? The anointing was upon him. Then we move to David, and David receives the anointing. Notice David is, is uh, anointed as king, but it's years before he actually sits on the throne of Israel, right? And what does he do? 
He humbly waits his turn because he recognizes that Saul is still the anointed. David has opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to slice up uh, Saul, to kill him, to get rid of him, which ultimately would be better for David's life and stress and heartache and everything else. But he recognizes that the anointing of the Lord is still on Saul. And so he's not going to attack him. And he's not going to run him uh, down and kill him. He's not going to wipe him out. But Saul, on the other hand, even though he has the anointing of the Ruach, a Kodesh upon him, Saul isn't going to walk faithfully with the Lord. And the very next thing that we see right after all of this is Saul makes a misguided sacrifice. Let's just look at some of the headings of the next couple of chapters. Saul makes a, a bad sacrifice, a misguided sacrifice. And we go forward um, and... Uh, uh, Saul makes a rash vow that ends up causing him all kinds of problems and consequence. Uh, we go forward, Saul spares Agag and Amalek. Amalek, God had told Israel to wipe them out completely because of how they treated them in the, in the Torah, right? Because of how they treated them coming from Egypt to the promised land. God says, wipe them out completely. And Saul takes care of them, makes a treaty with them, and looks after them and protects them. Uh, and over and over again, he does these things that are just completely against the will of God. And then appears this man named David. And so Samuel, who was already an old man when Saul comes on the scene, here comes Samuel, uh, and the Lord says, hey, by the way, Israel got what they wanted, and they're going to deal with the consequences for a while. But now I want you to see the king that I've chosen, and I want you to go find him, and I want you to search him out. So in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we see where Samuel anoints David as king. So verse 1 says, Now Adonai said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, uh, for I have selected for myself a king among his sons. It's interesting. Where is it that Yeshua was born? Bethlehem, right? King comes from Bethlehem. Uh, so... Uh, but Samuel replied, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Adonai said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Adonai. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You will anoint for me whom I tell you. So Samuel did what Adonai said and went to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem. Uh, the elders of the town came out to meet him trembling and asked, do you come in shalom? Do you come in peace? In shalom, I, he said, I, I have come to sacrifice to Adonai. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Upon their arrival, he saw Eliab and thought, surely Adonai is anointed. Uh, one is before him, speaking of, of Eliab, thinking, hey, this dude's big and bad like, like Saul. Maybe he's the next king, right? That, that strikes me as kingly. Um, verse 7, uh, but Adonai said to him, to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I've already refused him, for he does not see as a man see, uh, see as a man, as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but Adonai looks into the heart, right? So Israel got the king that they wanted in Saul because they were looking at the outward appearance, right? And Eliab was the outward appearance, he was kingly. But that wasn't what God was looking at. He says, look, man looks at the outside. I don't. I look at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. But he said, neither has Adonai chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And again, he said, neither has Adonai chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, Adonai has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the boys you have? They're still the youngest one, he replied, but right now he's tending sheep. I want you to grasp this, all right? Saul was what ex is exactly what humanity thought should be king. Saul was the prime idea of a king. 
He was big, he was bulky, he was bulky, he was bold, right? He was fearless. And then God chooses David as the next king. And it's through David's lineage, not Saul's, but David's lineage, that we get the kingship of the nation of Israel and ultimately the kingdom authority of Yeshua. Um, And as we see all of this, what we realize is that there is a drastic, drastic difference between Saul and David. When Samuel goes to, to, to Jesse's house and he's looking for who God has anointed as the next king, and he says, hey, bring all your sons to me. Jesse lines up seven of his sons. Jesse doesn't even think to go get David. David's not only the least likely to be thought of as king by the nation of Israel, his own father couldn't see the potential in him. His own father who loved him couldn't see the potential in him. Notice God says, I don't look at the outside, I look at the inside, right? I don't look at the outside, I look at the inside. For us as believers, it's equally as painful a statement as it was encouraging for David. Because for us as believers, we like to live on the outside like everything's just right, right? Like we're, we're honoring God as we're supposed to. We're, we're keeping this and we're doing that and we're worshiping like this and we're doing, we're praying and we're in the Word and da-da. While on the inside, we're still, we're still messed up, right? And we think, hey, Nobody sees what's going on on the inside because the outside looks perfect. And, and you're right, these people out here don't, they don't see it. But the Lord does. Because the Lord doesn't care about the outside. He cares about the inside. The outside doesn't matter until the inside's right. Right? And so he says, uh, he tells Samuel, look, none of these are it because I'm not looking what people see on the outside. I'm looking for the inside. So Jesse says, yeah, there's still the youngest one, but he's out with the sheep. It doesn't, he doesn't matter. Send and bring him, Samuel said to Jesse, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent word and had him come. Now he was ruddy-cheeked with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. Then Adonai said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. So Samuel took his, the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. From that day on, Ruach Adonai, the spirit of Adonai, came mightily upon David. It overtook Saul. It came mightily upon David. Notice a theme of the way this is worded. The mantle was lifted off of Moses and placed upon the 70 elders. The mantle was lifted off of Moses placed upon Joshua. It overtook, uh, and we have the image of, of Samuel pouring the oil on Saul's head. It overtook Saul. And here uh, it says, from that day on, Ruach Adonai, Spirit of the Lord, came mightily upon David. Then Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And from this moment forward, David begins to serve in Saul's uh, household to take care of him, to serve under him. Uh, Saul doesn't realize he, it's, a, it's an apprenticeship. When Saul does realize what's going on and, and the, the, the spiritual oppressive battles that are going on with Saul realizes the anointing that's on David. Saul begins to try and kill him. And from this moment all the way through the end of Samuel, which is 1 Samuel chapter 30, um, or perhaps 31, off the top of my head, my mind just went blank. 1 Samuel 30. Uh, So from 16, 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Samuel 30, David is just patiently awaiting for whatever the Lord's going to do with Saul. And he's running for his life. And he's fighting against, and he's teaming up with Philistines, and he's doing all of these things because he's patiently awaiting, because he recognizes that Saul is the anointed. Now, for us as believers, uh, we got to understand the value of this. 
Because a lot of times we get upset about something. You know, Matthew 18, God gives us this whole list of, of a proper order of dealing with a, uh, a bad situation, right? Somebody does you wrong in your congregation, you go to try and make things right with them. If that doesn't work, then you go to the leadership. If that doesn't work, then the leadership stands before the congregation and kicks them out or whatever, right? There's a proper order to everything scripturally. And David realizes that even in this Like He's the anointed. He has every right as the anointed king of Israel to go and just wipe Saul off the face of the earth. But it's not God's way. It would be Saul's way. It would be exactly what Saul would do. As a matter of fact, what Saul's trying to do to David. So David patiently waits. The anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh is upon him. And how many of us in our lives realize that when the Ruach is leading us to do something, we see this vision that we want to happen now. The Lord said, this is going to happen. We want it to happen now. It's exciting, it's invigorating, but sometimes the Lord wants it to happen down there and he's telling about it now so that we can get prepared for what's about to happen down there, right? When David was a young boy and he was fighting against Goliath, he wasn't ready to sit on the throne, right? I mean, there's no way he didn't have any training, any sort of uh, uh, idea of what he was facing. He had the chutzpah, he had the courage to go out and fight Goliath, but he wasn't ready to sit on the throne. He had to sit under soil to learn how a king operates first and learn both the good and the bad. As a a rabbi coming up, training under different rabbis, I had to watch and learn and see what works and what doesn't work and what's good and what's not good. And what the Lord was leading me to do as a rabbi in our congregation, our synagogue right now is made up of uh, the way we do things is made up of a conglomeracy of things that I've experienced in other synagogues that worked. And there's a lot of things we don't do based out of a conglomeracy of things I've seen in other synagogues that I saw did not work or were not good. And so it's important that we realize we have to see what's going on around us and we have to watch what the Lord is doing in his anointed. Even if we know we're his anointed and that person's his anointed before us, we have to wait our turn and watch and learn what the Lord is revealing to us. And for David, what the Lord was revealing to him was how not to be a king, how he was not to serve. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see David mourn for Saul and Jonathan. Notice Saul dies Jonathan dies. Jonathan was his best friend in the world, right? Saul and Jonathan die. Saul was the king of Israel that was trying to kill David. David was the successor to the throne by decree of the Lord. David didn't rejoice when Saul died. Even though Saul tried to kill him over and over again, David didn't rejoice when he died. David didn't rejoice when he was out of the way. How often as believers do we have David's attitude? <clears throat> Or in contrary, how often as believers do we see something happen to the anointed of the Lord and they fall from where the Lord has raised them and instead of us mourning with them and and sharing in that sorrow and helping build them up, how many of us poke fingers and laugh and make fun of them, right? We got lessons to learn in operating in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh from David and from Saul. So David now has every right to climb the throne and take his position as king. But instead, he takes time to mourn the death of the king before him. He takes time to mourn the death of the anointed. And then he begins to operate from that moment in his anointing. Now, the reality is the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh was on both David and Saul, right? Right? The Ruach, it says that the Ruach overtook Saul. It says that the Ruach mightily became, uh, came upon David. The Ruach, the anointing of the Ruach, the mantle of the Ruach was on both of them. And there's lessons we can learn from both. We see that the Ruach HaKodesh was upon Saul and, Paul, uh, and Saul squandered it away. Right? 
The anointing of the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was the anointed king of Israel. He had the opportunity to lead Israel into righteousness before the Lord, but instead... But instead, he begins to make rash decisions and he begins to harm Israel and he begins to cause Israel to be attacked by the nations around them, to be attacked by the Philistines. He begins to cause desecration before Israel. He begins to break down Israel's faith in the Lord and he begins to hurt the image of the Lord that is supposed to, re- to, to, to come forth from him before the nation of Israel and before the nations around them. But then we have David. And although David made some mistakes, no doubt about it, right? That whole Bathsheba thing was pretty bad, all right? David made some mistakes, but the Lord says in his word, David was a man after God's own heart, right? And although he made some mistakes, he made it a point to repent and to come back. And the anointing was on him, and although he did mess a few things up, he didn't squander the gift of the Ruach like Saul did. Instead, he developed in the gift of the Ruach. And every decision he made, he tried to bring before the Lord. And if he didn't bring a decision before the Lord and he messed up, he came before the Lord in repentance on his face. That's the example to set. See, notice, we think about a leader and we're thinking of what the world around us tells a leader is. But when God thinks of a leader, it's somebody completely contrary and different. When God says he can use somebody, and one day I'm going to write a book on this, the people God wants to use aren't the people we often think of. David's own father didn't think God could do anything with this kid, right? His own father left him out in the field. He doesn't, he's just a kid. What's he going to do, right? Yeshua, nobody thought Yeshua would do it. Yeshua starts to speak and wisdom comes forth and people go, dude, aren't you from the Galilee? Like, you guys are a joke. What do you mean? What do you know, right? This is Yeshua. Paul, Paul begins to preach and what do people, aren't you the guy that was killing us? God couldn't have possibly chose you. You were killing our people, man. What are you doing? Right? Over and over again. He chooses Peter. Peter hates Gentiles. And who's one of the main people, the first people he speaks to and shares with and witnesses the Ruach fall upon? A household of Gentiles. Right? God chooses the less obvious. Mainly because what is obvious to God is not going to be obvious to sinful man. Because God's looking at the heart and we can only see the exterior. So we see in both scenarios, Saul and David, both are empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. Both are overcome by the Ruach HaKodesh. Both have the anointing and the mantle of the Ruach HaKodesh upon them. Both have the ability to prophesy, as we see happens when the Ruach is upon someone. One squanders it and wastes it away. And one walks boldly in righteousness in it. And righteousness doesn't mean we're always going to make the right choice. We are human. Righteousness has more to do with how we return than it does with how we walk it out. Right? Then we see Solomon. Shlomo in Hebrew. Solomon is, Solomon's funny. We go to uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. David dies. There's this whole jockeying for the throne of Israel and and Solomon is the one who God has already anointed. Notice Notice again, God always chooses the less obvious, right? Solomon's the son of a really bad relationship. He's the son of a really bad mistake that David makes, right? As a matter of fact, go and look at the names. There's, there's four women in the, named in the Gospels in the lineage of Yeshua. Every single one of those four women are of some sort of 
perceivable, questionable, questionable sexual uh, uh, promiscuity. All right? Every, even Mary. Look, Miriam may not have had sex with Joseph. All right? The scripture makes it very clear she was a virgin. But to the world around, she was anything but. Right? To the world around, she was perceived as a whore. Then we have uh, 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 Judah's daughter-in-law. My mind went completely blank on me. Judah's daughter-in-law, uh, who tricks him, says she's a prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law, and pops out a couple of children, and one of them is in the lineage of Yeshua, and, and so on and so forth, Ruth and Bathsheba. And, and we see all of these people, like Ruth, when it says that she laid at his feet. It's euphemism. She climbed to bed with homie, Right? She didn't just cuddle up with him at his feet. Who's going to do that? It stinks down there. Feet are disgusting. She climbed in bed with him. Bathsheba, absolutely questionable, without a doubt. Right? So every time we see these people in the lineage of Yeshua, there were all kinds of mistakes. And it was people that God would choose because God sees the inside while we see the outside. Solomon was a bastard in the eyes of the world around them, yet God chose him to be the king of Israel, and God chose him to place his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit, upon him to lead Israel. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, after he has secured his throne, after he has officially been anointed as the king of Israel, 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning with verse 6, <clears throat> at Gideon, I'm sorry, beginning with verse 5, at Gideon, Adonai appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask for what should I, ask for what should I give you? Solomon said, you have shown my father, your servant David, great loving kindness, as he walked before you in truth, righteousness, and uprightness of heart towards you. Indeed, you have kept this great loving kindness for him by giving him a son to sit on the throne as it is today. So now, Adonai, my God, you have made your servant king in my father's father David's palace. I am but a youth. I don't know how to go out or come in. In other words, I don't know how to lead. I don't know how to lead your people. Your servant is amid your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a mind of understanding to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it was pleasing in, Adonai, in the eyes of Adonai that Solomon requested this thing. So God said to him, because you asked for this, uh, because you asked for this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor asked for yourself riches, nor asked for the, the life of your enemies, but asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. I have given you wise and discerning mind, so that there has been none like you before you, nor shall anyone like you arise after you. Moreover, I have also given you what you did not request, both riches and honor, so that no one among the kings will be like you in all your days. Furthermore, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke and took note of the dream. So he went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and offered the burnt, uh, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and he made a feast for all his courtiers. Solomon, here's the voice of the Lord. The Lord says, what do you want me to do for you? What should I do for you? And Solomon says, who am I to be able to lead your people? These are your people. You have chosen them. You have called them forth for your purposes. There are way too many to even be numbered. Who am I to lead your people? And what do I know about leading them? 
The thing I ask is that you give me your wisdom to lead your people as you would have them led. Your wisdom to lead your people as you would have them judged. Your wisdom to lead your people as you would have them kept unto yourself. I'm paraphrasing some of this, by the way. All right? He tells the Lord, I want, all I want is the wisdom to be able to lead your people as you would see fit. In other words, give me your wisdom. From where do we get the wisdom of God? The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Lord within us. And overtaking and overcoming and infilling and indwelling of His Ruach is where we get the wisdom of the Lord. And so Solomon says, give me wisdom to lead your people. In other words, give me your Ruach HaKodesh to lead your people. Solomon is the anointed, he's the chosen one. The Ruach is upon him as it was David and as it was Saul, as it was Samuel, as it was Joshua, as it was Moses. The Ruach is upon him. But his desire is not for riches and wealth. His desire is not for long life. His desire is not for peace. His desire is for wisdom to lead the people of the Lord. And the way I would interpret that, at least at this moment, not that his heart is always in that direction, but the way I would interpret that is, give me the wisdom to lead your people in your ways in your ways so that your people remain righteous and holy before you so that your people always walk faithfully with you when the ruach hakodesh is placed upon us as believers when we are are washing the blood of the lamb and filled with the ruach hakodesh with the holy spirit it is not for our benefit it's not so we can go out and do magic shows because of all the wonderful signs and wonders that god can do because all the miracles he can do through us he gives us his spirit that we can lead people in righteousness to him Saul received the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh and he wasted it. He threw it away. Samuel had the anointing of the Ruach HaKodesh and he faithfully walked hand in hand with the Father for his entire life, serving the Lord with everything that he had and fearlessly standing before Israel and proclaiming the word of the Lord no matter what. David was filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit, and he waited patiently for the Lord's timing. How many of us do that enough in our lives? He waited patiently for years for the Lord's timing. He risked his life. He risked any future. He did all of this laying his life aside so that he could follow the will of the Lord in the Lord's timing. And when the Lord's timing came about, he served the Lord after a man, as a man after God's own heart. And then his son Solomon arises and honoring the example of his father when the Lord says, what do you want? What can I give you? As a man after God's own heart, his reply is, give me the wisdom to lead your people in your ways. As believers, that's what we are to do. We tend to be more like Saul, squandering the power of the Ruach HaKodesh as a whole. The body of Messiah, we are Saul. We squander it. We throw it away. How many denominations are there that believe in cessationism, that the Spirit of God no longer operates in our lives today, that there are no signs and wonders and no miracles? But that's just not biblical. On the other side of things, how many of us are there that make a fool of God? How many denominations and, and believers are there out there that make a fool of God by making the empowering of the Ruach HaKodesh look like something it's not? Or we take it, how many leaders are there? How many leaders are there that acts like they're operating the Spirit of the Lord for the sake of their own benefit and their own gain. 
not to name names, but telling their people to buy him a jet. By the way, if you want to buy me a jet, I'm okay with it. I'm not telling you have to. I'm just saying I'm not going to turn it down. But no, I'm just joking. Uh, but but we, we have to be David. We have to be a person after God's own heart. Look, none of you sitting in this room, including myself, none of us in this room, there's nobody out there that would look at us and go, oh, no, obviously that's who God would have chosen. Heck, that, I would have chosen that. That dude's awesome. I would have, not a chance in the world anybody's going to be thinking that about us. But God doesn't see the outside. He sees the inside. And the Lord has chosen each one of you. The Lord has called each one of you. The Lord has anointed each one of you for his purposes. He has given you the wisdom of his Ruach HaKodesh to lead people in his ways. And it's important that we as believers grasp that, understand that, walk in that faithfully and fervently. Not make a fool of the Lord, not make a fool of the Ruach HaKodesh, not to make a mockery of it. There are way too many people in the world around us that look at the body of Messiah and say, I want nothing to do with that God. Because that God is not God. That God can't be God. And if that's the case, then we are not acting as men and women who are after the heart of God. As we move through this study next week, um, uh, the next session will be looking at Elijah and Elisha. Um, and, and I think it's a, a very important discussion because particularly with Elijah and Elisha, one of the things that we see is an example of, and, I, and I'll let Lynn talk about this more in that session, but if we see an example of Yeshua who said, when the comforter comes, when the Ruach comes, we'd be able to do even greater things than he. Elijah walked powerfully in the gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh, right? And Elisha walked even more powerfully in the gifts of the Ruach HaKodesh, right? In order to get there, and then ultimately to get to Yeshua as he operated in the Ruach HaKodesh and to get to the Talmudim and Acts and how they, how they operate in the Ruach and how we today are operating in the Ruach, we have to understand the foundations. You have to understand Moses and Joshua, the 70 elders. We have to understand creation and the Ruach's role in creation. Excuse me, in creation. We have to understand Samuel and David and Solomon and Saul. We have to understand Nathan. We have to understand all of these individuals, Elisha and Elijah. We have to understand Isaiah and Jeremiah and how the Ruach spoke through them and worked through them and operated through them for his purposes, not for yours and mine. And our will has to align with his purposes. We have to fully submit. When it says that the Spirit of God overtook uh, Saul, that was predicated by it saying, and the Lord transformed his heart. So if the Ruach HaKodesh, which has overtaken us, is not operating through us in the way that it's wanting to operate, odds are we have not allowed the Lord to fully transform our heart as he wants. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you for giving us this time together to uh, hear your word, to receive from you. And Father, I just pray that as we continue in this series on a Ruach encounter, that we will experience an encounter with your Ruach HaKodesh, that we will experience an encounter with your mighty and glorious, glorious Holy Spirit, Lord. Make us more in the image and likeness of our Creator. Make our hearts that of the, those that seek after the heart of the Lord. Father, make us where we meet with you face to face as Moses met with you. Father, we worship you and we glorify your holy name. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. Name Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.